0: Cliffcentral.com. <laughs> the Daily Maverick Show on Cliffcentral.com. All the state <laughs> that you see by the lofty lights. What's the
1: Good afternoon. You're live with us in the daily Maverick show on cliffcentral.com. Starting with a bit of a special, special song for this special, special occasion. Is it the dawn of a new era for America with, with, with President Hillary Clinton or is it the beginning of the Hunter Games? with upcoming President Donald Trump. We will find out soon enough. Before we get to that, Greg Nicholson, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. I'm doing really good. Pretty excited. We have somebody on the ground in America that we haven't you know, had before, which is pretty excited. We have Ranjeni Munusami, who's usually with us talking all things ANC and state capture on this side, and now is on the ground in Pittsburgh. Ranjeni, can you hear us?
2: Hello, Kingsley.
1: How are you doing? How's things over there?
2: Oh, my gosh. It has been... So mind blowing, <laughs> uh, you know. We've just come out of an election cycle mm. in South Africa, so I, I thought, you know, well, you know, an election campaign is an election campaign. Let's do this. Um, and uh, you know, Washington. Um, I, I, I got there um, uh, a week and a half ago. I mean, yeah. And and that that was um, you know pretty tame. There were election events there. That was pretty tame. Mm. But then I got to Pennsylvania, which is a battleground state, and uh, and then I've been to the uh, uh, Republican and Democratic rallies, and it has been absolutely astounding. It has opened my eyes to an America I never knew existed. Um, I you know I I, I don't know. Uh, but on on Sunday I went to a Trump rally. Um. I mean, we've heard really, so much about think, this. I'm so
1: curious to have somebody who's not been in that environment, never been to a Trump rally. What was it like? What happened?
2: Well, um, the Trump rally was um, in an airport hangar. Um, in in Pittsburgh's uh, just off from Pittsburgh's main airport, mm-hmm. um, and I thought you know it it, it, it be basically these events are these uh, campaign events are very compressed. So okay. Clinton's one on Friday um, had about two thousand five hundred people, and and that's generally what what happens. You know, okay. it's uh, very contained. It's not kind of mass rallies like we have back at home. Okay. Uh, you know, we have an entire stadium. But um, the Trump rally, when when we got there um, uh, late afternoon on Sunday, there were there were already a long queue of cars and the queue of people, um, you know, waiting to get into the venue was already snaking right around the block. So eventually, about nine thousand people turned up, and they said there were there about three thousand people waiting to get in. They couldn't fit into the venue, but it was like um, a religious. Uh, uh, event, you know, it was like a evangelical kind of revival. It was amazing because uh, you know, these people really and truly believe Donald Trump is, their, is going to be their savior. He's not just their political leader. They don't believe that he is just going to be president. They think that he is going to change America. He's going to change. He's going to turn the establishment upside down. But that he's going to impact on their own lives. He's going to make, um, you know, their 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 own families better. They're going to, uh, you know, he's going to basically come into their homes, uh, you know, change their jobs, and he promises to make them rich and wealthy. Um, he promises uh, you know that the, 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 their towns and their cities are going to be changed dramatically so um you know it's it 's way different the atmosphere is way different from what you would ordinarily find um as a political rally. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of children and um, a lot of teenagers, which also surprised me. You know, I had this impression uh, that it's kind of a middle-aged, um, a, uh, you know, white voters um, that support Donald Trump. And yes, they're all white. I was the only black person in that venue, which really scared me. Um, there is also a lot of hostility against the media. Mm. From the moment I walked in there, um, people shouted to you. Uh, they, you know, when they are standing in the queue, they shouted to you. And while you you pinned into uh, an area, designated area uh, for the media, and throughout, people insult you. Um, you know, they call you names. Uh, so it was really scary. Um, you know, as a journalist, I've never experienced anything like that.
1: I mean, a lot of the, the think pieces and, and, and that we read about Trump and his campaign, they talk about, um, sort of this white middle-aged America and a lot of men who, who feel like sort of things have escaped them with the Obama presidency, with the increased focus on diversity, um, that they, that they see the Trump campaign as a, as a chance to sort of reclaim their place in, in the social hierarchy. Did you get that sense on the ground?
2: Yes, there is that sense, but they there I a, uh, I don't know, a, a, you know, it's it's not just um, a sort of aging white mm. men. Uh, while there are many of those, uh, there's a startling number of women. Um, they have their own banners mm. uh, which say "Women for Trump," um, and and they they believe that um, Mr. Trump has just been treated rather unfairly. Um, They believe that he is a a good human being, that he has given up his time. You know, they keep saying things like, you know, he's a rich businessman. He doesn't need things like this. He's doing this (laughs) for us. He wants to make our lives better. He loves America so much. Um, And look, there's a a heavy leaning on, um, uh, you know, America's um, uh, kind of um, – you know, the military history, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the wars that America has engaged in, um, the veterans that have fallen, the veterans have, that have served their country, um, they believe that, um, you know, this is a, a kind of new mission for them, um, you know, for the veterans of, of America to stand up now against the, their own establishment. And even that is quite frightening, mm-hmm. um, because many of these people, and I've seen signs around the Trump rallies that says, uh, again, that say, keep, keep calm and carry guns um, uh, and, and things like that. So, um, you know, it's really worrying um, what will happen from tomorrow when the results come out. Because it, I think it's pretty clear that Hillary Clinton will win unless there is a major upset today and um, unless all the polling has got mm. it wrong. Um, but, you know, when you see that kind of passion on display where men and women and children turn out in large numbers um, and, you know, are, are so emotional about this election, you have to wonder what happens from tomorrow. How do they go on with normal lives? You know, how did they just kind of click back to who they were before this campaign started um, and, and accept Hillary Clinton and the new president?
1: I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking about the 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 messaging that the different the different uh, candidates are going into this final day with. You said you've been to both both rallies on both sides, and are they are they focusing more on a hopeful message? Are they focusing more on the doom and destruction that happens if they don't win? Are they are they insulting each other, or are they more focused on the individuals themselves? What what themes are you seeing in terms of their messaging?
2: Well, there's a very, very different texture to the Republican and Democrat rallies, Hillary Clinton in the last lap of her campaign was trying to focus more on a positive messaging, saying that she will be the president of all people, not only just the people who voted Mm. for her. Um, And last night, uh, for example, there was a massive rally in Philadelphia um, with um, Clinton appearing with uh, President Bill Clinton and her daughter, Chelsea, as well as President Obama and Michelle Obama. It was Quite spectacular, um, and you know her messaging and, and all their messaging there um, was kind of an embracing message, you know yeah. that um, you know they can kind of heal the United States after such a polarizing campaign. Um, but uh, the the feel at the, at the Republican rallies are completely different. Yeah. There's a lot of insulting. There's a lot of vitriol. Um, Donald Trump is constantly on the attack uh, against Clinton, against the Democrats, against the media. Um, that, that has, for me, has been really, really shocking. Is um, you know how much. Um, uh, Donald Trump has bl- blames the media um, uh, you know, for, for the way the campaign has unfolded. He believes he's been treated unfairly. He believes the polling is all wrong and that he is going to win. He believes the system is rigged and therefore the results won't be um, an accurate reflection of people's vote. Um, so yes it's, it's um as i say' it's a, it's a different uh, texture and um i think the 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 feeling that um, the republican and democratic voters go um, to the polls with Today um, uh, is going to be very different. People are voting for very different reasons.
3: Rangini, we've heard a lot about how important it is, how important it is for the candidates to win in battleground states like Florida, North Carolina, Iowa, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, just to name a few. Now you're in Pennsylvania. What what sort of have your conversations been like with just average voters around Pittsburgh?
2: Well, um, you see, uh, in um, uh, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are, are the major urban areas in Pennsylvania, and there are, there's a there's a strong uh, presence of uh, of the Democrats, and they they they, they tend to vote blue, um, and uh, Philadelphia uh, particularly, um, you know, is quite strongly Democrat. Uh, but Pennsylvania has been um, uh, Democratic voting generally, but the entire area in between, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not really rural areas, but, you know, places outside the major urban areas are very, very rare, and that's what you see as soon as you drive out. After the cities, you find very strong Trump supporters in these areas. Um, there's one woman just outside of um, uh, Pittsburgh who's uh, converted her entire house into a Trump house. Um, she's painted, she's erected um, this massive cardboard cutout of him outside a house, and people have been coming from, what, thousands and thousands of people have been flocking to this area just to take pictures at this house. Uh, and some people have actually um, come to take their Christmas card pictures outside this house. Uh, you know, that is the dedication to, to, to Donald Trump. So um, it's been a difficult state to read in this election, and that is why there's been such a high presence of, uh, of the candidates here. Um, you know, Mike Pence uh, Trump's running mate has been in and out of um, Pennsylvania. I was surprised that Trump came on Sunday, um, but he, I think he believes that he can swing um, Pennsylvania red. Um, and and Clinton has been here twice in in three days. Um, so yes, it, um, they they do believe that um, uh, that a massive turnout. I think will 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 change the voting patterns of the state, and uh, Trump really believes that um, the push from the areas outside the the urban centres in uh, Pennsylvania will change um, uh, the, this um, uh, the state to uh, to the Republican.
3: It really feels like with this election being so polarising, that just the divisions within american society must be palpable there is that is that sort of how it feels or or beyond beyond everything we see on tv and the newspaper headlines is everything sort of you know quite normal oh
2: no uh, uh, greg it's anything but normal it's um <laughs> It's an, extre- an extremely abnormal situation, really, um, because people are so impassioned about this election. Um, in, on, uh, on Clinton's side, particularly among women voters... This is a major deal for them, um, you know, to, to have a woman in the White House. And, and you know, it, there's a sense of history about this. Um, but there's also, you know, big issues for them, such as equal pay for women um, uh, and um, uh, child care uh, and preserving um, access to, to affordable health care. So there's, um, you know, for them, it's to, to preserve the lives they have, the respect that they have. Um, and also, um, you know, for, for the gay community in, the, in the United States, they yeah. are also, um, you know, the, the people that I've spoken to, uh, they, they seem rather desperate that, um, you know, that the achievements and that, uh, that have been made in the U.S. are not reversed. Yeah. Um, I, and, and, and there's a real fear, particularly amongst, um, Hispanics that, um, uh, you know that their lives might change dramatically under a Trump presidency. They don't know what it will all mean, what the threats of a wall and, um, you know, ma- mass removal of uh, immigrants and the prevention of immigrants coming into the country. They don't know what all of that means. So, you know, it's a high stakes game for them as well. But as I say, on the Trump side, it's a different matter altogether. They believe that um, their lives are going to change completely. Um, You know, when they say make America great, I kept asking this question, what do you mean? What is great? And the great they're talking about, I mean, some of them say it's at the time of Abraham Lincoln. Others say it's that America was great in between the 1950s and the 1980s. And that's the the America they want back. Now, for the the rest of America, that's rather scary because, uh, you know, at that time, um, people did not – have the liberties that they have now, but for Trump supporters, that is what they want. Mm. They want a state where there's an imbalance uh, in life so that basically white people in particular, middle class white people um, uh, such as them, um, you know, enjoy privileges that other people do not have um, and that the system favors them. Um, and uh, 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 working class um, white people in in this country as well have felt that um, you know that they have uh, lost jobs, industries have closed, uh, and that their lives have gotten worse. Um, and they believe that Trump is out there batting for them uh, and his presidency will see, a, um, um, you know, a, a shake up of um, the industrial sector, the reopening of factories of uh, in, in areas such as Pittsburgh, mm. um, the steel factories um, and, the, you know, the, 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 the people who are unemployed. And there isn't as high an un- unemployment rate as we have in South Africa, mm. but they believe, um, you know, that there will be a generation of wealth, not just creation of jobs.
1: And Jenny, the more and more you talk and the things you're describing, especially from Trump's side, I can't help but think that you will come home with a very different perspective on South African politics. I don't think you you perceive it as crazy as we sometimes make it.
2: You know, when I left home. I was so uh, despondent and afraid because, you know, I, I, when I left home, gone Gordon was still, uh, about to be charged, mm. uh, and I didn't know, uh, you know, with my the, the few um, rents that I was coming to <laughs> the what U.S. They <laughs> what they were worth, you know, whether I would be able to survive in the United States. Uh, or if our land was going to tank completely once, um, and Gordon appeared in the dock. But yes, you know, I've been watching what's been going on at home and, um, uh, you know, particularly the, the march to, to Tswane. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I think, Yes, uh I, I I do have um a new kind of hope that um uh if things aren't as bad as as we think we, they are in South Africa mm-hmm. that basically the whole world is really messed up. Um you know, you have, sometimes people have this vision of uh the United States being utopian, uh you know, being the kind of vision that we see in um in uh, in the movies and um in our favorite serials and you know that um it's all about Hollywood and um uh you know people live generally good lives and then there's all this political theatre yeah. going on and it's just entertainment. But it's really terrifying for people here uh, you know what can happen to their country. Um under both presidencies because under a Trump presidency I think the way of life will change completely for Americans and I think that America's relationship with the world will change completely under a Clinton presidency there's so much divisiveness and polarization that I think you know that the the the, the ethos of the country has been shredded and um, people don't know. There's, there's a lot of uncertainty about what happens. There's also fears about perhaps there, there could be violence um, um, and, you know, some people rejecting the outcome mm. of the election. And, you know, when you look at what we've been through back home, um, you know, we, uh, we we came through um, uh, a very divisive local government election mm. campaign. Uh, there was violence, but we, we dealt with it as grown-ups. Um, and, we, and we survived it, you know, um, and our, our democracy strengthened. So, yeah, I have greater appreciation for how we engage in, in South Africa after what I've seen here.
1: Okay. And Anjana, before we let you go, you mentioned that the, the, the polls are pointing to a, a Clinton win. Um, so if you just speak a bit more on that and also when do we expect the major results to start trickling in?
2: Um, well, uh, the, the, the polls will will, will will open soon and um, it will go on until um, till about 8 p.m. tonight. So, uh, you, you know, because of the time changes from um, the East Coast to the West Coast, the last polls close at 11 p.m. Um, so we should have, you know, um, basically uh, a lot of the networks will start calling the results. From around, uh, you know, as they come in from the from the various battleground states from uh, 8 p.m. here uh, in the U.S. and um, by 11 p.m. Um, uh, here, you know, we should have some sort of sense of uh, the final outcome, unless there are major uh, there's major contestation um, in in, uh, in the battleground states, um, and that. So basically, by tomorrow morning, as uh, dawn breaks in South Africa, we should know.
1: Okay, I'm on the edge of my seat here um yeah. i don't I don't know what else to say. i suppose good luck
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes it's a it's a big day uh in the u s uh i I'm a bit apprehensive as well you know i am not as invested as uh, other people mm. are here yeah. um but yeah it's it I, I think there are major repercussions for the entire world, so we all have to pay attention
1: absolutely And Jenny thank you so much for chatting to us.
2: My pleasure.
1: Bye-bye. Okay, perfect. Aswan Jeni a Daily Maverick Associate Editor, who's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as we speak, uh, covering the elections. Greg, um. Aside from the craziness and, and talking about Trump, uh, grabbing crotches and all the other fun things he's doing. Um, that was wild. What, yeah. That that, that, that,
3: and this guy still is in contestation to be president of oh, the United States of America. Absolutely. Um, well, didn't, didn't yeah. Mitt Romney lose on his, like, one of the key reasons, uh, was it, yeah, Mitt Romney lost yeah. was when in that debate, he says he has files of women. I don't know if you remember that. Yes. That seen was as sort bit. of his sexist, um, you know, orientations. Yeah. And that was and enough. Well, well, that was a key point yeah. in the elections where, you know, he sounded in terms of like, he lost the woman vote and he sounded ridiculous. Right. Trump has said, far far more outlandish stuff but i guess i guess that's what makes him trump right yeah, that's it, i being, think it
1: actually makes him stronger in really weird ways um and on our side we've actually had quite the roller coaster also i remember i mean just after we went off air last week there was a lot of conversations around the state capture report um will it be released will it not be released um would would zuma 's legal team make sure it couldn 't be released, and there was this massive massive build up and then before you had it, before you know it, the thing we 've been talking about for so long, the Tuli a legacy some might say was eventually released i mean do you, do you remember that sort of build up in anticipation in going yeah. into the courtroom
3: No, it was hectic, so I think now talking about the state capture report yeah. and local politics here, just after hearing Rand speak yeah. about just the craziness that's happening right now across America. Um, It definitely does seem, you know, like, it doesn't quite seem as extreme, right? But no, definitely. So I wasn't in the courtroom that day. I was um, on the streets with the economic freedom fighters marching around Pretoria, Mm, the the, Tawana CBD. Um, And even then, you just had this feeling that, you know, something big is about to happen. So inside the courtroom, um, the, the lawyers for, for opposition political parties, um, were fighting Jacob Zuma, President Zuma's attempt to interdict the state capture report yep. from release. And so this time I'm running around. It's so hot around the streets there. And these guys are, you know, some of like just, they split up into all these different groups, the EFF supporters mm. and shut down the whole city on all the different sort of entrances yep. and exits. And so you're running around with them, running around with them. And then, at some point while I'm running around doing this, I didn't think the court issues would end that day. No, or, or, you absolutely know. Not. Yeah. And then I just get told that, no, actually, President Zuma is, his, has withdrawn his application to interdict the, the release of this mm. report. And so I'm asking, so what happens now? And then about 20 minutes later, someone says something like, it's going to come out by 5 p.m. today. That it. And like, it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I think we all were like, what do you mean today? Yes, you today. mean today? Yeah. It was almost like everyone wants this report to come out. Uh, the media, of course, journalists, civil society, and just... Um, politically active yeah, citizens, citizens have been so keen to just see what this thing says because it's been building up for so long. But then when, when we heard it's going to come out within a few hours, I was like we're not ready.
1: Yeah, Wait, like, what? Like,
3: we need more time. <laughs> I need to be sitting in the office yeah, with a coffee and process, a highlighter or something yeah. like that, right? Um, so then of course the, the sort of nation eagerly awaited the, the release of the hmm. report and um, the the Public Protector's Office, which is obviously has a new public protector, yeah. they released the port, report online at, I think, about 4 p.m. or something like that, a little bit before their deadline. And obviously, everyone immediately was just scanning the reports yeah, and the key s- sections of it yeah. to see what was included. And I think the initial reaction to the report was... Um, somewhat muted, m- uh, muted, I think, with, I think people were hoping, or critics and stuff like that, and, and even those, those who just like drama, because it's built up so much. Everyone was sort of expecting, after, you know, a few months of investigations, after what, um, public protector Tuli Madonsela found in her Inkandla report, which mm. upgrades President Zuma's home, I think everybody was expecting a huge blow for the president, uh, a decisive blow that could end his leadership. Um, and I think on both sides, people were quite from, from President Zuma's supporters and President Zuma's opposers. I think both sides were quite anticipating that people were anticipating that this could be really decisive for the president, but perhaps he heard wins that it actually wasn't so bad. And that's why I true. Oh, his I didn't
1: think of that. That's interesting. Um,
3: but no, I think some of the report's key, key findings. So I think there were a lot of it was sort of already been in the, in the public domain, but I think that having, a public protectors report on this issue now and we've seen the impact of the public protectors reports can have after mm. after what happened with the Inkanda report um i think that has really really it's been a big change for our politics at the moment and and pushed pushed Zuma's opposition much further into um into their attempts to remove him, right? So, but just to go over some of the brief yeah, brief findings, please, yeah. you know, I think one of the key ones was that there was sort of no evidence indicating that the president um, or, or any of the executive um, really looked into these claims that Deputy Finance Minister Labisi Jonas um, or Faki Mentor made that,
1: up that, said, yeah. that they'd
3: been offered posts um, by, by by the Gupta family, offered, yeah. offered cabinet positions in in exchange for some sort of other um, rewards, yeah. and they, then they would obviously have to perform favors or for for the family. Um, so I think that one was one of those key things because that definitely does just look like an outright violation of yeah. the law if there hasn't been any investigation of what was reported as a crime. Um, then I think we also have a lot more detail on on issues of uh, people like uh, Amos Msiswane the the mineral resources minister um um and certain other ministers and sort of government leaders on on their close relationship with the Gupta family I mean, in, being
1: there, what is it seven times in seven that's days right, or something That's right. Yeah like I think that. in
3: particular one of I don't think anyone really I guess we could have predicted this if you thought about it, but no one really was like thinking that Eskom CEO Brian Malefe would often, would come out as the sort of the real villain of the, the state capture report. Because what, um, Tulum did do is she looks quite in depth at, at how the Togeta, um, Togeta, the Gupta Link Togeta company ended yep. up buying, uh, Glencore's optimum mine. Uh, and then, and then the contracts that Togeta then got with Eskom and all of these sort of murky details that sort of happened in then that really does look like number one, that ESCOM, um, led by Brian Maleffer, who she established, has a very, very, well, quite a close relationship with the mm. Gupta family. Um, and then, obviously, all of that came out Saxon-Won-Shabin, nonsense and whatnot. But what it looks like, at least from the public protector's side, is that ESCOM almost made this mine of Glencore's, you know, this mining giant's mine, almost unusable and forced yeah. it into rescue. And then they basically ensured or, or engineered that get would be able to take it over yeah. um, with obviously with the the minister traveling to switzerland to to help negotiate this deal yeah. and then and then they also ensured that get would get up and running with with millions and millions and millions of of prepayments and yeah. certain things like that so that I think has been one of the key fallouts in the last few days, at least, all of the actual details of the report. It's really come down hard on Brian Malafa and Escom, and we saw last week when he when he got quite teary, and he's been quite defensive um, in his responses to the media so far.
1: I mean, I think I think you're right. I think a lot of this stuff we did know, but I think it's it's different when when the the Office of the Public Protector, which we now all respect and hold in such high regard, and 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 are all. Perceive it to be very neutral and very professional. Comes out and gives the hard facts that this mm. person was in Switzerland on this day for this, and the cell phone tower shows that you were here on this day. And on mm-hmm. this, so I mean, I think that I think you're right. There's just another layer of, of I wouldn't say seriousness, but I'd say, I'd say you're right. I'd say that the walls are definitely closing in on 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 those on those uh, implicated in the state capture. And
3: things. I think it's not just those implicated in the state capture report because we 've seen such a long and gradual build up of of opposition to President Zuma and his allies, um, and in general he 's been able to get away with, with with most of the allegations against him mm-hmm. and and come out sort of apparently unscathed. Uh, we saw it happen with the Enkanda report yeah. and we saw what happened when when the Gupta family landed um, their their guests at the Vorlo air, air base, but at the moment, I think things are just building up to a certain A very heated and, and like things are coming to a head in terms of those who support Zuma and those who don't. So if you think about the ANC at the moment, we've seen all of these veterans, all stalwarts, you know, some of, some of both step out and, and really sort of question the current leadership of the ANC. We've seen Jackson Dembu call for the whole NEC, including the, the president and himself to resign. We've seen a senior, senior parliamentary, um, member, um, Antonio this weekend basically, basically say that they must ask Uh, President Zuma to step down and Mm. have Cyril Ramaphosa step, you know, step up. Uh, we've seen, uh, the union Nahawo also say that President Zuma should resign. Um, we're seeing this sort of build-up, and then you've also got, obviously, within the ANC, people like the Gauteng um, um, provincial leadership, who are very, very against um, Zuma's leadership. Absolutely, I think
1: they were at the so, same essay, some of them were at the same that's essay, right. that's much, right, which is pretty much against them. And so
3: we're seeing, I think, with as as a evidence uh, or, or, or the implications of wrongdoing and maladministration mount, we're seeing the opposition forces grow and swell. And then that's just within, within the alliance. Obviously the SACP is also, is, you know, really questioning the Absolutely. president at the moment. But then outside, outside of presidents, outside of the ANC, we've also got, you know, remember what happened to the EFF and how they responded to the Enkanda report. They caused, you know, they, they did not let the issue I go. Mean, that's where payback they the shut down, down the national from. assembly where, yeah. again and again and again. They marched on the streets. We've seen the DA just continually sort of more, more, not in terms of action, but you sort of raise its, raise its voices and just, uh, my money would just seen him pillory yeah. President Zuma every single chance he gets. And this week, and I think you see what the DA is trying to do right now. This week, they're going, they're, they're hoping to discuss the, um, a motion of no confidence Absolutely. in the National Assembly yeah. for President Zuma. Obviously, what's going to happen is the ANC, once again, when these motions appear, the ANC will rally around the president because, you know, they don't want to be told by the opposition what to do. But then that's going to smear the ANC worse because now, you know, it's the, the, now they're they all, all the like, people
1: who defended this person.
3: That's right. That's right. And so so the DA will now be able to or taint them with the same brush.
1: Um, yeah, I think one – I'm just curious about the – on the report specifically on the recommendations, do you – um do you see that still being an important part of the process, it going through, through having, actually having a sitting judge going through it and, and, and yeah. going deeper into some of the, the findings? Or do you think this, is what we've heard so. From- so far, is enough to really cause enough cause a lot of issues.
3: No, I think yeah. I think what plays out now will be really interesting. Yeah. Obviously, so that was the key recommendation that, that Madame Sala left is that um, a commission of inquiry be be appointed with with the chief justice appointing a judge to lead that commission of inquiry, treasury giving adequate resources, and also this commission having the same sort of subpoena and evidence gathering powers as the office of the public protector. Now, if that goes ahead. Um sort of barring a review or, or sort of we'll see what happens. Or or a court challenge to, to the public protector's powers to actually set the terms of a commission of inquiry, because that usually falls under the presidency's responsibilities. Um I think in a, either in a review or if this if there's something like what seems like there'll be a quite independent inquiry we'll go ahead. I think Things are only going to get worse for those implicated in this report and their networks because it even has broader, broader investigatory powers and probably more time. Well, it's only got six months so maybe not much more time, but it will, it will put a lot of people on the dock and, and have public, the people implicated in these reports will be publicly questioned day after day. They'll come under heavy scrutiny. And I do not think that will be good for. Both allegations of, of misuse of state power or corruption as well as for ANC, um, leaders as the perception that really affected them in these local government elections of just this arrogance and distrust. I think, I think if this inquiry goes ahead with these issues and we have the same leaders who are sitting there, Mm. you know, on TV being faced with these extremely critical questions, I really think it will, it will be a, a, a negative for the ANC come 2019 elections.
1: And there you have it. Um, the drama that is national politics here continues. And we still, of course, have the situation between the Hawks and the NPA and the finance minister. And that's something that we'll make sure to keep talking about and watching. Um, just to change focus slightly, we're going to be talking a bit about Gambia. Uh, the West African nation that has elections coming up in December, so in just a few weeks, and we'll be speaking to Human Rights Watch, um, who've done a, a an extremely comprehensive and detailed report about the about the electoral environment going going into the elections. And there's some really worrying founding findings around freedom of press, freedom of opposition parties, um, and just really the ability of a free and fair election to take place. For this, we'll be speaking to Jim Wormington, who's a researcher in the Africa division with a big, big focus on West Africa. Jim, can you hear?
0: Yeah, I can hear you very well. Thanks okay,
1: for nice. having me. Um, so, Jim, I mean, just mentioning this, this detailed uh, report that you've been a part of working on around the Gambia electoral, electoral process and electoral uh, sort of road to elections in December. One thing you looked into was the allegations of intimidation, violence and kidnapping of, of opposition leaders. Could you tell us a bit about your findings on that?
0: Sure. No, the election is December 1st. So, as you say, in a few weeks Um, But as we look back at what's happened, it's important to go back to April of this year, uh, when an opposition activist called Solo Sandeng uh, went out into the street with a banner that said, we demand electoral reform. So basically calling for a more level playing field for opposition parties to contest the election. The sort of thing you see routinely in South Africa or or in uh, in more freer countries. Uh, But in that case, Solo was arrested. Uh, He was taken to the headquarters of Uh, Gambia's intelligence agency. And later that night, he was beaten to death. That led to a much wider crackdown on members of Solu Sandeng's party, which is called the United Democratic Party, the largest in Gambia, uh, including the arrest of the party's leader and much of its executive. uh, And then 30 members of the UDP, including the leader, were sentenced to three-year jail terms, basically for having gone out into the street peacefully uh, and to demand justice for the death of, of Solo Sande. So this is a situation that has been certainly worsened since April. But it's also important to point out that President Jame has been in power since the 1994 coup. This is the fifth election uh, that he's contested. And each time there's been a pattern that as the election approaches, there's a wider crackdown on opposition and, and really any dissenting voices. So it's a a situation that is becoming critical as the election approaches and we'll be watching very closely in the next few weeks.
1: Uh, You've also mentioned that there's very limited room for opposition parties to actually even campaign just in terms of time allocated legally and also in terms of uh, media that's willing to carry their message uh, on air or in the newspapers and so on.
0: Yeah, it's a a very challenging context um, for opposition. you, You have a context in which... President Jame has, has complete control of, of the state apparatus, uh, state media, uh, civil servants and the army routinely accompany him as he campaigns, even before the official election campaign begins. You see these striking images of, of Jame with a huge entourage of army and, and civil servants following behind him. And then in contrast, you have opposition groups uh, who, if they want to organize a rally, for example, have to get a permit from the very government that they're seeking to challenge. Uh, Those permits often take a few weeks to get and and sometimes are denied. And so they just face sort of bureaucratic obstacles for for going out into the streets. And then they have no access to state media and to state uh, radio, uh, which is in a country that is not highly educated, is really a key uh, medium for, for getting access to voters. So as you look at the picture, you have this entrenched uh, regime that's been in power for a long time, uh, which is willing to use all of the state's resources to, to support its own candidate. And on the other side, you have an opposition who faces intimidation, who lives under a climate of fear, and yet at the same time has little access to state media and, uh, and radio. So it's a really challenging context for opposition without question.
1: Uh, you've, you've mentioned just, just in a previous answer that the uh, President Jame came, came into power in a coup in 1994. He had promised to step aside after three months to allow for elections, and clearly still hasn't done that. Do you think that moment, when 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 the coolie, the cool leader who became president, did not step down, do you think that was the turning point when alarm bells should have been going off, or do you think over time he, he's he's gotten progressively worse, and perhaps it's been a gradual increase in terms of the dictatorship and the
0: brutality? I think it's it's difficult to to relativize uh, the government's. Record of abuses because, without question, uh, there have been moments pretty much throughout uh, President Jammeh's time in power when the security forces have resorted to, to excessive force and 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 killed or or tortured and disappeared uh, protesters. Um, I think what's important to say is that each election cycle, and there's been five, as I said, we've seen this pattern of intimidation uh, of the opposition and a lack of a, a real free space for a contest. Uh, in 2011, for example, ECOWAS, which is the regional actor in West Africa refused to even observe the election because they felt like that election was so tainted uh, by intimidation. So I think that in a way, each of these elections had the potential to be a, a key moment in giving Gambians the chance to, to really pass an objective judgment on Jammeh's record in government. Uh, but they've been denied that opportunity on five separate occasions. And so I think what's important to note is that this election is is becoming, a, in a way, a little different to others because mm-hmm. you have a united opposition seven opposition parties who've come together to name a single candidate. And so while there is a, a, another opposition party, Jammy will only face essentially two opposition groupings as he contests the election, a far more cohesive opposition than he's seen before. So I think the potential for a, a sort of more contested process is there, but there's also certainly the potential for the government to resort to a crackdown a, a, even more than they have done so far this year if the election becomes more closely contested.
1: Mm. Uh, now, Jim, you've, you've mentioned that, uh, Gambia is part of the economic community of West African states and they've all adopted a good governance sort of framework that they're all supposed to comply with. And clearly, Gambia isn't complying with. Um, what do you think is the role of, of these other member states, uh, in West Africa of putting pressure on Gambia to, to comply and, and sort of free up the electoral process? Um, what, what do you think is their role in that and how effective do you think that could be as a, as a, as a, as an incentive or disincentive to continue as they've been?
0: Well, first of all, I think they have a, a huge role to play. Um, I think that ECOWAS is a, in many ways is a very progressive regional grouping um, with the ECOWAS Community Court of Justice, which has a, a strong human rights jurisdiction and has passed some really important human rights cases, including, for example, on the disappearance uh, of journalists in, in Gambia. Um, and the Good Governance Protocol was a real commitment. It was supposed to almost be kind of a constitutional document for West Africa that sets out the rules, for example, on elections, that there shouldn't be coups and the elections should be free and fair. So, given that commitment, we're basically asking, and many Gambians are asking ECOWAS to, to live up to the reputation that it has, to some extent, deservedly built. Uh, that means making very strong and robust statements against Gambia, including by other heads of state in ECOWAS. Uh, we haven't really seen that yet. In the June ECOWAS Heads of State Summit, they called on Gambia to respect, for example, the rights of opposition, but didn't really condemn what had already been a a pretty atrocious year for human rights in Gambia. Um, And then, as with many countries that that work on Gambia, it's important for them to go beyond just robust rhetoric and really move towards something that demonstrates to the government that human rights abuses have real consequences. Um, For example, ECOWAS, if there is a violation, as you rightly say, that clearly is of the good governance protocol, Mm. ECOWAS does have sanctions that it can apply against Gambia, including even suspension of Gambia from uh, ECOWAS decision-making bodies or failures to back uh, Gambians for international posts in the UN and, and other uh, bodies. It's absolutely clear in our opinion that given how little impact has been had so far from the sorts of statements that we've seen from ECOWAS, but even from from, from the AU and the European Union, the US, that, that the government isn't going to change purely on the basis of statements. And so at this point, it's important that people look towards sanctions
1: um and and just on this on the topic of of regulatory bodies and continental ones, what do you think about the role of the african union um they've sometimes come under fire for inaction on Ethiopia, Burundi, or just not not being tough enough and not willing to for different member states and presidents not willing to not being willing to condemn each other and, and come out strongly against each other um Do you think there's a role for the African Union to play at the in this
0: no, absolutely. There is um, certainly as a sort of backup and a, and a compliment to what ECOWAS itself yeah. is doing as the regional body. I mean, in some ways, Ban- uh, Gambia is quite a specific case for the AU because the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, sort of a, a court like judicial body uh, that oversees the human rights record and sort of supervises the human rights record of, of African states. That's actually based in Banjul. The African Charter on Human and People's Rights is known as the Banjul Charter. Banjul being the capital of Gambia. So there's a real sort of obligation on the African Commission and, and on the AU, who, which it's part of, to be almost particularly diligent on Gambia so that the fact that the Commission is not based there is not this huge contradiction given Gambia's human rights record. Uh, we've seen in April uh, that the African Commission did make a, a strong statement on Gambia that they should continue to do that. And they should be stronger in, in arguing that the AU itself uh, and the groups of states within the AU Both make stronger statements like ECOWAS on Gambia, but also start to apply real pressure on Gambia at the Peace and Security Council, for example, to to take action to address these, these human rights abuses.
1: Um, And next, just on the topic of the international community, I'd like to ask about uh, the the European Union and the the U.S. Um, You you mentioned in your report that the EU has has taken some steps in terms of sort of withdrawing some development funding from the government and channeling it through non-state actors. Um, Do you think those kinds of measures are... Effective, so the eu and the u s perhaps either withdrawing completely or diverting funding to Gambia or some kinds of travel bans um and any other sanctions. do you think those kinds of measures would be effective in terms of getting getting the Gambian electoral process to to open up
0: Well, as I say, we certainly feel that at this point the the rhetoric and and condemnation of of countries is important but it but isn't enough. Uh, human Rights Watch doesn't, in this case, um, argue that there be economic sanctions on Gambia. Those, as we've seen in other countries, tend to affect ordinary Gambians more than they affect the elite and, and the government. Uh, but we certainly think that things like uh, asset freezes for government officials that are implicated in human rights abuses, uh, travel bans would be very significant. I think in some ways Gambia sort of represents perhaps something that we've seen in other countries where you have uh, the EU and the US taking an engagement approach, trying to have dialogue with the Gambian government, thinking that they can very slowly move President Jamey and his uh, entourage towards a more open and progressive human rights stance. But in reality, we're looking here at a a, a government that's been in power for 22 years, where there's been this sort of cycle of of an election, abuses before an election, and then an attempt to engage Jamey when the, the election is over. And it's clear at this point that that approach just doesn't work, uh, and you need to have something that, you, that you're holding as a backup to the rhetoric that you're that you're saying, and some sort of, of stick, if you like, to, to follow the carrot. And in our opinion, those types of asset freezes and, and visa bans that really focus on specific individuals are really effective because they don't affect ordinary Gambians, and they affect the people who are benefiting economically uh, from this uh, from this government.
1: Um, Jim, um. The more we talk about it, it seems like a, a really, really tough situation. I mean, in the, in the most mildest terms, it just seems like almost unresolvable. I mean, you have the president saying Ban Ki-moon can go to hell, calling Westerners vermin, saying he's going to bury people nine feet deep. How how hopeful are you that that, that we will see electoral reform and, and, and a decrease to brutality and the killings and kidnappings in the in, in the future?
0: Well, I think there's two different scenarios, as you say, the election being December 1st, very close by. I mean, the first is that uh, the opposition are able to win in this upcoming election. Um, you know, obviously, we wouldn't take a position on how likely that is. But, mm. but given the challenges that the opposition face, it certainly is an uphill struggle campaigning in elections. Um, were that to happen, that would create essentially a decision point for President Jamay as to whether he steps down in a peaceful manner or whether... I think the risk of conflict and human rights abuses escalates dramatically. Uh, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is if, if president Jammeh wins this election, then I think that the arguments that human rights watch and those are offer are to argue for a sort of increase in civic space an increase in the space that opposition parties and NGOs and journalists have in Gambia by uh, the U S the AU, the, the EU ECOS um, ECOWAS, um all putting enough pressure on the Gambian government that slowly you see this opening of civic space, you see this ability of opposition parties and NGOs to challenge the government, and that that in itself slowly leads to the kind of opening of a democratic process that would allow for a fairer electoral process in the future. Uh, Gambia does have legislative elections next year and local elections the year after. So this is not the the only test, this upcoming presidential election. But certainly you're right that that either there's a a short-term risk of conflict uh, certainly if if jammy does refuse to step down or we're looking at a medium to long-term effort to open up democratic space to allow for a freer and fairer gambia in the long run mm-hmm.
1: and jim just before i let you go my final question um, i mean your team um interviewed you know hun- you know uh, hundreds of people in the compiling of this report and had just so many stories from people in gambia people who've had to flee to senegal um and so on and i'd love if you could just Tell us, you know, one of their stories, just to, to to sort of humanize the issue somewhat. What are the what are some of the challenges that that you and your team are hearing from just regular Gambians who are not not that interested in politics and just trying to to to, to earn a living and survive? What are some of the issues that they're facing um, in the back in
0: the background or the backdrop to this uh, elections? Sure, I mean, I think perhaps the most powerful story which I can also connect to ordinary Gambians is is that of Fatumata Sandeng, who was the daughter of Solo Sandeng, who was the opposition activist, beaten to death in April, which really began this latest crackdown. Um, a family, and she has eight siblings and a, and a mother. Uh, her family immediately went out onto the streets to call uh, for their father's body to be released and for information about how he died. Information that they still haven't had and they still haven't had the body. Um, and then the police visited their house and threatened them and they were forced to leave Gambia. Uh, leave the country that they had their uncles and aunties and, and relatives in, that they knew, uh, you know, imagine a, a mother who's just lost her husband with nine children and having to flee in secret uh, to a country nearby to, to Gambia and now living in a, in a very, uh, if you like, sort of downtrodden compound, uh, relying on the diaspora and others to support them. Uh, just a, such a, a stark change to a very middle-class successful family who, who had just by chance become political activists and the impact on them of the death of their father and the subsequent intimidation that they suffered by the police has been extraordinary and and really both tragic to witness, uh, but incredible because the family shows such courage and grace um, given what they've been through. And I think that 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 point, the fact that so many Gambians have had to leave Gambia, I think, is what perhaps is the, the biggest illustration of the tragedy that the country faces. You have people leaving like the Sandangs because of abuses that they and their family have faced. But you also have an, a huge number, an extraordinary number, really, compared to the size of Gambia, of young men in particular taking what they call the, the back way uh, up through North Africa to seek economic opportunity uh, in Europe. Many of those people are leaving for economic reasons rather than the the, the oppression that the government uh, mm places upon people but clearly the lack of an open democratic space uh, and the lack of really just an openness to the international community from gambia has an impact on its economic situation so i think it's that uh, that's that really illustrates the tragedy and the struggle that, that many gambians face
1: jim thank you so much i will continue to watch uh, as we go into december and, and please keep up the excellent work
0: Thanks so much. really appreciate it. Okay, wonderful. Thank you.
1: Uh, That was an interview with Jim Wormington, who's a a researcher in the Africa division of Human Rights Watch and focused specifically on West Africa. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in. Conversations about the American elections, state capture here at home, and the elections coming up in Gambia in December. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Please make sure to share the podcast far and wide. We'll see you next week. Daily Maverick Show, 1 to 2 p.m. every Tuesday. (laughs) the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com cliffcentral.com